It's worth turning in your Bibles uh, back to Ephesians 6, uh, verses 5 to 9. It's page 1177 of the Church Bibles. And also, hopefully inside the service sheets, uh, where you've got the songs during communion sheet, on the back of that you can see a bit of an outline of uh, where we are heading as we look at this passage together. 113 words. Don't count them. I'll be watching to see if you're counting them. But that's, uh, that's what my computer word count came up with uh, this week. That's our passage, 113 words. Words of instruction about an activity that many, many of us will have uh, dominate our lives. You'll spend over 90,000 hours uh, in the activity that these 113 words are about. 113 words about your working life. And I guess my first thought, as uh, that the computer spat back that figure to me this week, is that's not enough. I mean, if this passage contains God's instructions to me about a part of my life that will dominate my human experience, my work, I want more words than that. I, I want details, I want specifics. I mean, think about it. Uh, if uh, you were to try and explain to someone, uh, those, those who work here, if you were to try and explain to someone your job such that they could do it for you tomorrow... Uh, you'd, you'd want a few more words than that, wouldn't you? There, there's all sorts of details to any given job that we need to explain. Whole handbooks are written. Years of study go into doing jobs. Take, for instance, uh, if your job was to import caramel sweets into uh, Europe. I came across the European Economic Community's Guide for Importing Caramel Sweets this week. How many words do you think uh, that requires? 25,911 words. But, uh, you know, while it's not probably going to uh, fill your Christmas stockings, uh, that book this year, I imagine if it is your job, you'd want a working knowledge of all 25,911 words. All jobs are complex like that. They they have all sorts of details, all sorts of uh, instructions are required. Well, let me say, alongside any handbook or job description or training or study that you think is needed for the job that you may well be heading to tomorrow... These 113 words need to be top of the pile. They are your job description. And like many job descriptions, or at least this, this happens to me uh, sometimes with my job description, it sort of fades into the background after a while as you sort of get busy with work. Uh, well, let me encourage you to take this job description back out because this is the Christian's job description for your job that you're heading to tomorrow. They are 113 unmissable words for any worker here today and I also think they're unmissable for anybody who wants to support a worker which is the rest of us, uh, those who are supporting, those who are heading off to work tomorrow. And to see how unmissable they are I want you to have two things in your mind as, as we go through this passage, two things that you need to be aware of. One uh, more for your information and the other hopefully to inspire you. The first is that if you look down these verses, verses 5 to 9, at first glance they seem to have nothing to do with your work. There's no talk of employees, employers, there's no talk of management structures or or anything like that, just slaves and masters. It seems to be about something that's distant from us, maybe maybe something we hear about but not something that affects us. And yet we need to be clear that what the Bible is doing here is it's not making a social comment on the practice of slavery. Elsewhere the Bible does do that and in fact it's the gospel that transformed the practice, the abhorrent practice of slavery. And it's been Christians led by that gospel that has forced it to be abolished again and again over the centuries. 
But here what we are seeing is a practice that by this stage, as Paul writes this letter, is very much like our working experience, the experience of a slave and a master in Roman times, as Paul wrote, was just like your experience as an employee or an employer. So these words are deeply relevant. The second thing you need to be aware of, and this is perhaps the most important of the two, is as we start to see our job description in these words, I want you to see clearly that the only person who can do your job properly, be it as a medic or or a teacher or an accountant or a graphic designer or whatever it might be, the only person who can do that job the way it was meant to be done is a Christian. Let me push a bit further to, to explain what I mean. Take, for example, uh, if, if we were looking for a new clergyman here at, uh, at Christchurch Forward, somebody on the, uh, on the uh, clergy staff got sick of the weather and uh, shipped himself back to Sydney and uh, you're in the, uh, the market for a new uh, clergyman and you started to draw up a person spec, the sort of person that, that would fill that role, surely uh, on the top of the list would be they'd need to be a Christian. Otherwise it would defeat the whole purpose of the job. Well, now imagine that, uh, that you've moved on from your job and they're, they're appointing someone for your role, someone who can do the job properly. Now, you might say, well, there's lots of people who could do that. In fact, I have lots of colleagues, uh, Christian and otherwise, who are very good at their job, perhaps even better than I am. But to do it properly, purposefully, you need to be a Christian. Otherwise, you defeat the whole purpose of the job. See what I mean? Now, go back to uh, the, the creed that we read out together, Colossians it came from, Colossians chapter 1. And right in the middle there is, is a piece of information which says why this is the case. Paul, when speaking of Jesus, describes him as the one by whom all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. And so especially that last bit that is crucial. Everything was created by him and everything was created for him. God created you and your work for a purpose, for him. The whole point of your work is to glorify him, to honour him, to please him. He gifted you with, with the skills that you use at work. He, he made you for work. He made it all, industry, science, craft, you name it. For what? For him, for his honour, for his pleasure. And so if you are a Christian, you are in a long line of those who have had the same job in the workplace. You work for his praise, for his glory. Only a Christian can do your job purposefully. And it's, I suspect the challenge that we've met in recent weeks is to see this clearly. There's nothing ordinary about your work, just like there was nothing ordinary about our marriages or families, as we saw earlier in chapter 6. They're God-created things, God-focused activities. As spiritual as anything you do as a Christian, as spiritual as a quiet timer, as spiritual as being here this morning. And I think especially when it comes to our work, we struggle with that. I remember growing up, one of the common prayers that you'd hear prayed in, in in a church service is the person would pray for church and the activities of church, and we talk about those things, And then they'd turn and they'd say, and Father, we pray for those of us with ordinary jobs. Now let me say, no worker here has an ordinary job. You can do it in an ordinary way. You can do it in an unspiritual way. The vast majority of the workforce do. 
But our challenge as those who by God's grace have been given his spirit is to be spirit-filled workers. That, that was the call back in chapter 5 verse 18. Do you see there we are to be filled with the spirit in everything we do. Unfortunately, we're not left sort of struggling trying to work out what that's going to look like. God is very specific and that's what these 113 words do for us. They show us how you can do that. They're your new job description as you head to work tomorrow because there's been a change in management. Jesus is in charge of your work. And as we've seen in recent weeks, he walks into the details of our lives, the domestic details, and he reshapes them, our marriages, our families, And now you hear the knock on the office door tomorrow and uh, Jesus pokes his head around. He says, you're a Christian? You're a worker? Great. Wonderful. You, You were made for that. Now here's how I want you to go about it. Here's your job description. And the wonderful thing about Jesus' job description is it's not like sometimes you get a job description that's pages and pages long and you're not sure really where to start. His is quite simple. He gives you two tasks. He tells you what your job is And he tells you who you work for, what your job is and who you work for. Let's have a look at those together. Firstly, what your job is, what your tasks are as you head out on another week. And uh, really he gives you three tasks. All of them have to do with your relationship to your earthly master, your boss, your superior. First task, you see it there in verse 5. Slaves or, or employees, obey your boss with respect and fear. Or more literally, obey them with fear and trembling. Now I want you to picture your boss, uh, the one that you will uh, meet with tomorrow. It perhaps isn't the image that you have in mind, uh, approaching them with fear and trembling. That is the call here. It's not so much a call to sort of approach them with quaking boots and grovelling fear. It's a phrase the Bible uses uh, to describe deep, abiding respect. It's a call for you to approach your boss with a clear awareness of his position over you and the resulting authority. And it's worth noting that this command given by Paul was given at a time when most slaves would have lived in their master's household. And so over time for them it was easy for familiarity to breed contempt or at least disrespect. Now clearly uh, most of us don't live with our boss, which is uh, probably a good thing uh, for most of us that we don't live with our boss But uh, even without that, in this era of egalitarianism, of of tall poppy syndrome and things like that, the the disrespect of our boss is common in the workplace, isn't it? It's par for the course. Well, Paul says here, if you want to approach your work in a godly way, in a God-honouring way, task one is to relate to your boss with deep respect. If you want to work spiritually, this is your job. And so that's going to mean all sorts of things as you head out to work this week. One of the things that it struck me it's going to mean is it means that you won't enter into the behind the scenes contempt or mockery of the boss which is so prevalent in workplaces, the subtle comments, the subtle digs. It may well mean that you count yourself out of a lot of the conversations with your colleagues because of that. I remember when I worked for Unilever, the, sort of the head of our department uh, we'll call him Phil, that wasn't his name because I don't want it to get back to Phil. Uh, now Phil, uh, uh, it took me a while to work out what was going on but we had this big whiteboard that said where we all were during the week if you'd gone out to a client or whatever so people knew how to reach you. And uh, under Phil's name I noticed every Friday afternoon it said the same thing, on a course. And for a while I thought, great, Phil's so conscientious, he's always training himself up 
to do his job better. But uh, after a while you realise on a course meant on a golf course. And that's what Phil did every afternoon. And so what people would do, as soon as Phil left to go on a course, uh, that was uh, bring Phil down time. That's where we talked about what a bad boss Phil was and how terrible he was at his job and, and you name it. It'll mean you avoid being part of that. But let me push a bit further. It will mean that when you come home from work and you have that sort of debrief session about the day or the week past to your spouse or to your friend, you don't deride the boss. You don't vent in disrespect. Of course debrief. Get it off your chest, the, the frustrations of, of the working day or week. But always with a commitment to deeply respect your boss. For in the workplace, this is how you honour Christ. And notice uh, this call to respect your boss. It's not qualified with if he deserves it, if he's worthy of respect. Some of you will will have earthly masters that make uh, the guy on the the picture here, David Brent, uh, perhaps the worst boss in the history of time. A whole TV show was written about him. Make him look like the boss of the year. You wonder why they haven't made a show about your boss. He's so terrible at his job. But there's no call here to say, well, if he's like that, then you don't need to worry about respecting him. In fact, if there's a qualification made, it's to raise the bar, not lower it. Do you see it there at the end of verse 5? Respect him in the same way you do the Lord Jesus. That's a big call, isn't it? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect. The second task, again in verse 5, do it with sincerity of heart. As workers, as Christian workers, as spiritual workers, you have to work enthusiastically. Paul says this respect that we're to show to our boss, it can't be a mechanical, sort of robotic, mask-wearing type thing that we're just playing a role. You have to mean it from the heart. You have to be focused in your work, sincere. What does God want you to do at your work? He wants you to do your job. That's what you're paid for. Work enthusiastically. You see, the spirit-filled worker is not a task-doer or a clock-watcher. They're not just passing time till home time comes. You're in it, boots and all, devoted to your job. On Monday morning, on Friday afternoon, you are sincere. And again, it's going to be hard. I remember because uh, Phil, uh, my boss, was always heading off to go on a course on Friday afternoon, what also started to happen was Friday 3.30, sometimes 4, depends, became known as beer o'clock in the department and what would happen is now Phil's empty office became the pub uh, for the department and everybody just stopped work, often at the expense of tasks that were left or clients uh, being let down. Not so with you, says God. The spirit-filled worker is an eager worker, not cutting corners, not grumbling or moaning. We do our job with joy. You see it there in verse Seven, wholeheartedly, whether it's thrilling or not. Do it enthusiastically, even when it's just plain frustrating. You know, some jobs are thrilling, aren't they? You you imagine having that job. I'd love to be an international cricketer. I've still got that dream. I figure I've got about five years left to fulfil it. It's not going to happen, but I'd love to do it. I can't see anything about that job that wouldn't be thrilling. But most jobs aren't like that, are they? They have plenty of mundane activities, plenty about them that's not thrilling or or joyful. 
And so it's, it's, it's hard to sort of hear these instructions and think, yeah, I can work harder, I can even respect my boss, but to do it with joy, enthusiastically, that's a stretch. It's hard to get that excited about accounting. It's hard to be that enthusiastic about teaching this class. They're so hard to teach, so disrespectful. But don't be surprised if your work is hard, frustrating even. I remember seeing an article in the Sydney Morning Herald a few years ago about people and there was this shock finding. People found their work boring. 88% were dissatisfied with their job. 88%, that's a big figure. Well, let me say as a Christian, that shouldn't surprise you. You know that this is a fallen world, that our work is cursed. Genesis 3, verses 17 and 18 says, Our toil will be painful, frustrating, thorns and thistles in amongst it all. It will be hard. You ought to be a miraculous creature in a workplace like that, who works with heartfelt enthusiasm, who works that way whether it's thrilling or frustrating. And your third task, you see it there in verse 6, Obey your boss not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In verse 6, Paul invents a new word for us here, eye service. Serving only when the boss can see you. And while it's a new word, it's not a new struggle, is it, for workers? This, this tendency to work really hard when you know you're being noticed. Well, Paul's call to us here is to be consistent, whether seen or not. And I suspect our temptation to, to become eye servants at work takes two very different forms. Some sort of move towards being an eye servant because they're lazy. Either lazy because of ungodliness, and there'll be some like that here, not many I suspect. Some who may be well good at their job and can cut corners along the way. You're just marking time really. You only break a sweat when the boss is around to pay a visit or the annual review is coming or the Ofsted inspector's on his way. And some are lazy because of a sort of a false godliness, a false piety. You do what needs to be done and no more because you've got the view that God gets your best. You work hard in the Christian community and your job will gets the scraps. And so you're happy to, to curb your workload, to, to write a small group Bible study for the night or to take an extra long lunch with a Christian friend because that's the important stuff. But then some are eye servants for the exact opposite reason. Not because they're lazy but because they're workaholics. And I suspect in a church like ours where many are very good at their job, this is the far more common expression. You work for the boss's eye. You want to please him, impress him. You want acknowledgement, promotion, whatever it might be. And even the solo worker, the one who, who can't see a direct boss, can struggle here. You work for reputation. You work for the client's applause or, or for the reference they may give to, to their friends. God says, don't be an eye servant. And so how do we avoid this trap this, and actually be consistent with our work? How do, how do we avoid failing to be conscientious but also avoiding being obsessed with our work? Well, the answer is simple. In fact, it's the, the way we live up to all three tasks that we've been given here, the, the task to work with respect, work with enthusiasm and now work consistently. Answer? Remember who you work for. 
If you look carefully over these 113 words, something is stamped all over them. It tells you whose slave, whose worker you really are. It asks the question, do you work for the man? or Do you work for the wage? Do you work for honour, for position, whatever it might be? Who or what are you working for? Well, the Gospel written all over the pages of this letter to the Ephesians is the declaration that the crucified and risen Lord Jesus is head of all things. You are his slave alone. And in the words of the old prayer book, in his service is perfect freedom. Only working to serve him frees you up to work as you were meant to. He's your report to guy. Have a look at verse 5. Just as you would obey Christ. Verse 6, like slaves of Christ. Verse 7, as if you were serving the Lord. It's stamped all over it. You work for the man, the son of man, the one for whom, by whom and through whom all things were made. Do you see why only a Christian can do your job properly? You belong to him. You get your tasks from him. And verse 8, you see it there, you get your rewards, your pay, your remuneration from him. There's coming a day when you will meet your king in his heaven. He will reward you for your work. He'll have not missed a day of it. Not a single aspect will have gone unnoticed and he won't diminish it, nor will he fail to reward you. And I think that's really good news when we think about our work experience because often enough in the working life the wrong person will get the reward, the praise or the promotion, the bonus, whatever it might be the person who's crawled or lied, the the person who's drunk at the right pubs with the right people, even though you were the one who deserved the thanks, who put in the work, you'll be overlooked. But don't think for a moment that your work has gone unnoticed. It hasn't. The Lord himself will reward you. Now I have no idea how that will shape your eternity, an eternity that Ephesians clearly tells us that was won by Jesus' blood. It's guaranteed, certain. It is by grace so no one can boast. But what I do know from this passage is that what you do tomorrow at work, this week and for the rest of your life will echo in eternity. Your Lord is to drive and be the motivation of your work. I remember when I first started out working for Unilever, I've got to be honest, Phil wasn't a great boss. He was hard to work for in lots of ways and I felt pretty uninspired as I started to work but there was this moment early on where the, that, the big boss of Unilever from Europe came over for a visit and he swanned into our department and sat down uh, on the little chair in my office and started talking to me about my job and uh, he genuinely seemed interested and asked all sorts of questions and was really encouraging and all of a sudden I felt like a king. I thought I'm part of something really big here. It's not just Phil on his course, it's something really big. Well, let me encourage you as a Christian that you are in on something big as you work. You don't work for the NHS or the Education Department or the Church of England or whoever it might be who signs the cheque. But you work for the one who made you and owns you. And when you see that clearly, you are free to obey your earthly master with deep respect, with all your heart and all the time, because he is your master. Well, as we finish, let me draw out a couple of concluding thoughts uh, from this passage. I think there's a lot to chew over 
in these 113 words and I hope for those of you, especially in small groups, that you have a great time doing just that, teasing out what this will mean for you as you seek to live spiritual lives in the workplace. But let let me leave you with two quick ones. Firstly, notice that the passage also deals with a situation I suspect many workers here are in, that of being the boss. Many workers here have both a sort of an up and a down relationship at work, don't you? There are those who are who you're answerable to, but then there are those who, are, who answer to you. Well, if that's you, if you're the boss in some way, then verse 9 shows you what you're meant to do. You're to treat your employees the same way. Treat them with respect. Be wholehearted towards them. Be consistent with them. And why? Because in God's economy, he views you and them the same. And so if you get a promotion at work, if you manage a team of people, know this. God is utterly unimpressed by that. It doesn't have the same wow factor for him as perhaps it does for us. He doesn't see it that way. He sees a wonderful equality expressed in different roles. He sees you and your employees as people he has fearfully and wonderfully made, as people worth his son's blood, as two who will stand before his throne as creatures, not as slave and master. And the final thing I want you to take away from this passage is the whole issue of motives that has been behind it. Know what God is doing as he gives you these instructions. He's doing the same thing he was doing with marriage and families. You shape your marriage around the instructions of chapter 5 and you'll have a great marriage. You shape your family life around the, uh, the verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6 and your family will thrive. You work to the instructions of verses 5 to 9 and you will work very well. So much so that it may well mean for you, earthly speaking, things go well, that you will be held in high regard, that you will be a hard worker. It may mean that you progress along the career pole very, very quickly. But as you do, guard your heart. As your boss says to you, keep working like this and you'll be a partner in no time. Keep this up and you'll have my job. Guard your heart. As Jeremiah 17 tells us, the human heart is deceitful. Very easily we slip from seeing these instructions as the way we honour God to the way I get the promotion. And all of a sudden we've lost track of what our job is all about. And so as you struggle to keep your heart fixed on the king's pleasure, as you struggle to obey your earthly master or not to think too much of yourself as a boss, remember who you work for. And let me encourage you to make the words of Psalm 84, our other reading, your prayer as you head out on a working week. Better is one day in your courts, O Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than a king anywhere else. Let's pray.